on the road to doing good, people are creating cultures of fear and rigidity and exclusion. And then that becomes the culture that supplants whatever it is that you're trying to tear down. And I kind of think it's unforgivable. I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. Today's episode is a deep dive into exploring doing good in the context of activism. This podcast exists to explore the why we do good and the how we do good and what the implications of our do-gooding are. In activist communities, we often see a spectrum of people, from those who participate in activism sporadically to those who dedicate their entire lives to their causes. At this extreme end, we often see outcasts and outliers, visionaries, those living on the fringes of society and making change in their own unique way. In spaces where emotion is high and beliefs are held closely about the right way to do things, we often see tensions, people tearing each other down, a dogma of the right way to do things. So how does this impact the cause itself? And Is something good if it still causes harm? I've invited author and poet Lisa Wells onto today's podcast to talk about her new book, Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World, which introduces us to these visionaries and outcasts who have found radical new ways to live and connect to the earth. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. I want to ask you a question I ask all my guests at the start of every episode. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? Wow, I would be very interested to know if the first move your other guests make is to try to complicate the idea of good. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them do. (laughs) I don't want to be a, you know, a a broken record or an echo chamber if somebody's already said it. But um, I guess my first thought is good, of course, then raises the specter of bad. And then we have a binary. So that, that makes me nervous, but it's such a great question. It's so worth asking because of course we accept the premise of good and bad. And, and if you're living in a country that was founded by Christian colonialists, then the shadow is good and evil, but personally is the other addendum to that question. So if we're talking about, for example, the environment, our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, the idea that they would have not just a habitable planet to live on, but maybe a beautiful place to live or an abundant place to live if we want to shoot for the stars, um, then we would want to talk about impacts. So goodness in in that framework means having plenty of what one needs to thrive. And that goes for the future generations of life that are not human as well you know, clean water, breathable air, food and temperatures that are, you know, within the window that do us right. So a good action would be anything that supports that vision. And maybe a bad one would be whatever undermines it. I love that. And I love the complexity because I think it's it's, it's a big question and there isn't any one answer because it's so individual, right? Well, I'm so curious about what you make of the, I mean, you asked the question, but also what you make of this question because of your work background. You know, sometimes people get into trouble when they think they've found a good thing or they're doing a good thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. That, I mean, that's why the podcast exists, I guess, is, is my curiosity and frustration of recognising that what I thought was good uh, early in my career was absolutely not good. And watching people continue to do things that on a surface level look good and sound good and make you feel good, but are actually causing enormous harms to people. And I guess I'm curious about that middle space of is it good just because we think it's good or, you know, how do we balance the harms that we're causing and and how do we own our part in the effects that our actions have and reconcile that with our notion of good. But I, I guess that brings me to something I read in your book around, I guess, your personal exploration of this. And, and you wrote about the realisation that your own activism was a result of you being a product of a particular microclimate and that where you grew up and how you grew up meant that you were kind of guaranteed to have contact with activist movements and be exposed to that world. And you said, not to say that there wasn't altruism or genuine feeling at the root of my activism, just that the primary animating emotion, rage, was far more personal than I understood at the time. I was primed to reject received authority. And I I love this because it does get to the core of why we do good. There's often a rage against something that kind of drives us to engage in doing good, but that's not something many people connect with or ever understand about their own motivations. What led you to having that realisation? I would say that one of the overarching themes of the book is this idea of intimate relationship, not just with other people, but with a place so that we're not having these abstract conversations all the time about resources, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think you're much more likely to make sound decisions in a context where you actually know who and what you're talking about and you have some kind of investment in them. So for me, I like people, I like to have friends and I like to have family. And in order to do that, I had to spend a lot of time seeking out a variety of therapeutic modalities and getting to know myself and learning to take responsibility for myself and my emotions and my projections. I mean, if you care about bigger issues and if you're committing your life to them, you're offered this false choice between either what's viewed as a kind of bourgeois Freudian relationship to your own psychology or this collectivist kind of mode. And um, I don't think it's a choice. And I certainly don't want to live in any collective where the individuals aren't taking responsibility for their own psychology. So our psyches are formed by the groups that we live in and interact with. And our individual psyches in turn help form the group. So that's it's just another ecosystem. So I don't know if I'm straying from your original question, but it was important to me and continues to be important to me to be honest about what's motivating me at any given time and like how my very narrow worldview, because I'm just one person, might be missing a vast spectrum that's in play at all times, you know? Yeah. Do you still see yourself as an activist? I think the book is a bit of an activist book. I certainly push various agendas, albeit you know, while also poking fun at myself and complicating the issues, I hope, you know, I I want it to feel like this is a person who's trying to call bullshit on herself. But 
in the ways that I once was, no. I mean, I don't, I certainly have gone to a handful of rallies and protests in the last few years. But if I'm honest, I think usually I was there to support my students or to support people that I know in real life. That doesn't mean that I don't believe that those ways of pushing back on the system aren't important. I think that they, you know, often are, but maybe I've lost my appetite to some extent. Yeah, that leads me into my next question. How do you think your perception of, of what is good or what is right and your role in it evolved over time as you've grown older? So there's this toggling between the individual and the collective that I got at just a second ago. And I think my idea of doing good really depends on whatever problem I'm working at any given moment is. So sometimes the problem is really about, you know, working on my own ways of relating with people in my life or ways of relating to you know, my garden and small stuff like that. And other times it means trying to develop these kind of conceptual frameworks for thinking through these big problems and, you know, taking on the writings of other people and allowing myself to be changed by them. So I don't really view it as like a point A to point B kind of thing. It's more like a development that depends really on where the juices at any given time or where I feel like I could be most useful. So, you know, once I started apprenticing myself to writing and um, started to publish, it just seemed like there's a lot that can be done within that realm. Not like I plan to save the world or that I think even books are going to save the world, but I think they put a drop in the bucket and then we don't all die of thirst, you know. Absolutely. So the book, which is wonderful, by the way, is a pretty dark exploration of the the damage humans have done to our planet and the people who are trying to repair it. And it introduces us to the people that you call the outcasts and the visionaries that are living on the margins of society and working in their own ways to try to mitigate the impact that humans have had on our planet. And one of the things that struck me about the characters that you introduce us to is that no matter what type of good is being practiced by them. Those same kind of tensions exist within all communities and particularly activist communities. You know, this idea of tearing other people down sometimes or attempts to purify other people's belief systems with our own and this kind of dogmatic belief that there's only one right way and that's the way that you're doing it. What do you make of this and and, and what what was going on for you as you were meeting these people and and exploring these concepts and realizing this? Wow. Yeah. That's a great question. It's a big issue. I mean, on the one hand, it's actually pretty simple in that human beings are fallible and they miss things. And in all cases in this book, you have people who maybe with the exception of Ron Good has this experience of having some kind of revelation where they feel that the way of life that they've inherited is destructive And so they go in search of a new way to live. And they're sort of trying to figure out how to become beneficial contributors to their ecosystems and repair their relationship to others, et cetera, et cetera. But in order to do that, they're fighting gravity. You know, everything in the dominant culture is pulling them in the opposite direction of where they hope to go. And so, you know, they're going to bring parts of their mind as baggage from that other life. And it's going to show up and manifest in the new world. And, you know, sometimes it means that they've become so single-minded that they are 
unable to sort of see the forest for the trees or, you know, have fought so hard that they don't know how to stop fighting the people around them that love them and are trying to support their cause. So I think some of it just has to do with the kind of very young experimental aspect of their lifestyles, you know, like if civilization as we know it, the dominant culture were to collapse, if that infrastructure were to be unavailable tomorrow, then you know, maybe in several thousand years, you will have societies that will have learned some of these elegant ways of life that took every other culture on the face of the planet millennia to develop. You know, they're like very elegant ways of interacting with the ecosystems. Anyhow, it's to be expected to some extent. But also in activist communities, when I was growing up, there were these purity tests and this, this infighting. And now it's mostly conducted on the internet because that's where people are living their lives. I mean, it catches fire in a way that can be wholly obliterating to people. And I think you can pull out any one of one example and maybe justify the exclusion that people feel. But on the whole, I think we have a duty to look at it as means to an end. And then you ask, does the end justify the means? And I think the means are the end in this case, meaning on the road to doing good, people are creating cultures of fear and rigidity and exclusion. And then that becomes the culture that supplants whatever it is that you're trying to tear down. And I kind of think it's unforgivable. Find a new method for dealing with your problems, you know, because this is just in many ways a reiteration. It's almost like we're seeing people become ventriloquized by these punitive systems of justice that everyone's an abolitionist for, and then they're reenacting it in their activist communities. Yeah. These people who who you describe as, you know, outcasts and visionaries, like people that are living at the edges of the mainstream part of society who are confronting, they're confronting characters they are rigid, they are very, very vocal with their beliefs and their ideas and I think they can scare people away Um, and people who want to perhaps do things in those spaces are pushed away due to fear of maybe not being good enough or not being committed enough, not wanting to dedicate their entire being and life to something, therefore not doing it at all. And it makes me think of one of the biggest characters in your book, Phoenicia. You know, she's this kind of massive presence and that comes through when you're writing about what it's like to be around her. And she fully dedicated her life to what she believed was the right thing to do. But at the same time, she's abrasive and and sometimes abusive and causes harm to people through that unrelenting conviction that what she's doing is good and right. I think there's something in there about like this people living at the fringes of society who are doing this that scare other people away because of their absolute dedication. Phoenicia is a really great example because you can look at her in a number of different ways. Obviously, there are people who are actually close with her and they have their own way of looking at her. But if we're to look at her as a public figure, which she sort of was, albeit in a very fringy world, if your listeners don't know, the nutshell is she spent close to 40 years of her life living off the grid. First, she was itinerant and on foot hitchhiking all over the US and then drove a covered wagon. She had a sort of 
idiosyncratic Christian ministry where she viewed most of humanity as whores of Babylon destined for hell because they took from the earth without giving back. And then to serve God or serve creation, you had to be living in these reciprocal ways with the land, i.e. as hunter-gatherer gardeners, you know, very idiosyncratic version of of Christianity. And then later she traveled on horseback and people would come and go throughout her life and in and out of her camp. But she was devoted to nurturing these flowering tuber plants that were all over the Great Basin that many different tribes were in co-cultivating relationships with for millennia. And then of course, colonization killed a lot of these plants, but she was devoted to finding where they were surviving and, and helping them thrive. So the thing about her is she was completely uncompromising and she was very abrasive and confrontational. And I kind of view her, you know, there's a Lewis Hyde epigraph to that chapter, you know, who wrote the book Trickster Makes This World, because I do think that there's a place in society for people who are incredibly antagonistic toward the basic structures that underpin that society. And that is the revolutionary function I think she served. Like in a way she had to embody this floating purity. I mean, she also was like eating junk food from grocery stores that she bought with quote unquote Obama bucks. So it's not like she was only living on these roots, but in any case, living completely outside of the rules of society so that there's nothing can be taken from you. If you have nothing, nothing can be taken from you. And so you are free to say the emperor has no clothes. You're free to speak truth to power because what are you going to do? You could try to lock her up, but in a way that just made her feel like she had more of a platform, but there was collateral damage. You know, people who came into her camp who couldn't handle the full force of her. And then also she had a lot of, I'm guessing, unmetabolized trauma that, you know, she was acting out on other people. So it's a mixed bag. My feeling about her in the end was this is not a person I would want to live with or that I would send my children to go live with, but her voice still belongs. And I think it's important to incorporate and to learn from because there's a lot to learn there. It also struck me, you know, that she didn't want to ask permission from anybody and didn't differentiate between that. So, you know, entering lands that weren't hers and doing what she was doing, getting herself arrested, calling the police on herself to make a point. Uh It comes across that she actually was, as you say, so uncompromising in her belief that what she was doing was right and the right way to do it that she didn't differentiate between who she might cause harm to or whether she was treading on Indigenous lands that weren't hers without permission or a farmer's or a ranch holder's lands. It didn't matter to her who was slighted by her actions. Yeah, and I think sometimes she would frame it like her loyalty is to these plants or Her loyalty was to her conscience because if she didn't live in this reciprocal way, then she'd burn in hell. And so she's just doing what she can to, you know, serve her vision of God or righteousness. But honestly, whatever she had to say was really suited to the moment and what she thought you needed to hear in that moment. And that made her a very powerful teacher. And I think she was probably harder on me than she was on others because she knew I was writing about her. So it was yet another platform, you know. Yeah, your description of the last conversation she had with you was pretty brutal. (laughs) It was almost like taking a cold shower too, because there are aspects of it, of what she said that were true. You know, she says, you're a piece of shit. You want to give poison to the natural world and call it love. Is that something I really want to do? Well, no, of course not. But is that something that many of us fall prey to? 
it comes back to what you were saying earlier about your motivation for starting the podcast. Like sometimes it's the very thing that you think you're acting in the interest of that you're hurting, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You also wrote about um, finding out that Phoenicia had died and reading people's posts or memorial posts of her and how people were not afraid to say what they really thought of her, but at the same time acknowledged the good that she had done, not only through her activism, but through breaking them apart and making them see their own flaws. You know, she was such a complicated and divisive character. Well, it's a fine line, Lee, between the truly masterful teachers in our lives and these cult leaders, you know, like sometimes we do need to be shaken up and and be broken down so that something new can grow from the wreckage of what wasn't serving us, right? And sometimes there's more damage done. When what grows from the wreckage is not your own autonomy and understanding of yourself, but rather dependence on this parental figure who's telling you you're bad or telling you you're good, you know, that's, that's a danger. Yeah. I think we could unpack Phoenicia for a whole, <laughs> for a whole episode. You know, I see Phoenicia as working at scale, but in a really like simple connected way. And then there's other spaces where we're looking at radical interventions for large scale change to solve enormous problems that can feel unsolvable. And one of those ideas is is, is carbon sinking and innovation around that space. Why is this idea controversial? Like what what are the issues that come up around innovation in carbon sinking and and how we should go about that? So these more radical geoengineering propositions, I don't really know that much about, to be honest. I know just enough to be sort of afraid. I know a little bit more about the atmosphere dimming that people have talked about, you know, spraying these microscopic particles, diamond dust, some aluminum kind of derivative. That's a pretty scary idea. And I think it's the storage that's the most potentially damning. I mean, maybe you know more about it than I do. But um, I sort of rejected all of those ideas out of hand when I was researching the book. Like, I'm not interested in them because I think even if I spent the next year of my life learning about them from the most passionate advocates, I'm not that interested in them because to me, many of these responses are extensions of the problem at hand, the root of the problem, which is this tendency to abstract the issue from the organism, you know, like there's carbon in the air for many different reasons, but it all kind of extends from this same root, which is an extractive expansionist system that takes more life than it gives. To me, that's like the nutshell. And when I hear people talk about these things, like, sure, we'll roll the dice on potentially creating another ice age or like, you know, poisoning the lungs of every being on earth so we can keep driving our cars a little bit longer so we can, you know, keep using central air or keep relying on these monocrops and all of these various ways that we are destroying the planet. Like it reminds me of being a teenager and being out of weed and everybody scraping a pipe for an hour and a half to get some little nugget of resin that you can't even get high on. And then you're smoking like also metal shavings at the same time. It's like, dude, you're an addict. This is addict behavior. You know, you're just trying to get, you just want to get high one more time. It's like, there's only one way to 
solve this problem. And that's to get at the root of it, you know? And I don't know that there's any way to save, for example, major metropolitan areas. Like, I don't know if there's any conceivable way to make that system of life not profoundly damaging to the planet. But in the book, I do write about people who are proposing radical land restoration initiatives. And these are things that uh, still frighten people off. And honestly, I'm not sure that there won't be side effects to these interventions, but it does seem like mainly what you're talking about is restoring, for example, the depths and shapes of lagoons that have been filled up with sedimentation. So in a way, you are trying to recreate these systems from the ground up that resemble exactly what they were before people started farming on that land or before cattle compaction or before dams were built. And there have been some pretty amazing successes like on the Los Plateau and these guys, the weather makers and John DeLeu have proposed regreening this part of the Sinai Peninsula called Lake Bardwell. And their idea is that this is a key location where if you can just restore this lagoon and it really wouldn't involve too much intervention, like they would dredge the sedimentation in the lagoon and they would maybe plant some native plants, maybe hang some of these moisture catching nets in the hills, that the land would basically repair itself if given the opportunity. And then that would mean that these thermal drafts that are sucking all of the moisture out of the sea and the, and the land up into the upper atmosphere where it moves over Europe and precipitates in these huge summer floods that we've been seeing. If you could restore that land, basically the moisture could be held in the lower atmosphere and that would reverse some of these insane feedback loops that are just pummeling for adjacent regions. So it sounds really promising. It seems worth investigating. And to me, this would be favorable to like pumping a bunch of diamond dust into the sky. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems like there's a, I guess, two separate ways to approach it. And one of them kind of feeds into our capitalist achievement culture of innovation and, you know, large scale newness and change. And it seems that that's not perhaps intrinsically motivated by a need for us to just survive, but more so for us to survive in the way we're accustomed to living and to maintain the types of lives that we live now. And the other side is, you know, small-scale, targeted, localised interventions in particular atmospheres. And to be able to do that at scale seems really tricky and hard. So I, I wonder if people gravitate towards their science, the exciting side of it that sounds really good and, and feeds our addiction to achievement and newness versus hard over time, localized kind of actions. Do you see that there's external drivers that push either of those agendas? Yeah. As I hear you say this, I think like, of course, people believe that technology is going to save them because they've been enculturated by a mythology that tells them that their lives exist on this kind of arc, a human advancement graph, as I say in the book. And we started out primitive, quote unquote, and we had very few tools. And then slowly we figured stuff out and our culture grew in complexity. And then soon enough, we're landing people on the moon. And next thing you know, we're all going to take off in spaceships. You know, like this is the dogma that many of us were born into and continue to believe, never mind the 
fact that it's not actually based in any reality. You know, there were myriad complex societies that were distinct, living their their own particular ways, interacting with the land in their own particular ways that had very complex understandings of astronomy and psychology and and ecology and art, etc. That didn't lay waste to the world, you know. And this mythology has unfortunately coupled with this way of life that demands ever increasing amounts of resources. And so it's very hard to see outside of it once it's taken over so much of the world as it has at this point. So one of the big projects of the book was to undermine that mythology and introduce a different way of of viewing that, that story and how it came to be. Because once again, it's a false choice. Either we deal with these huge pressing issues at a global scale, or we sort of like form a relationship with our backyards, ah shucks. And I think we need both. Like we need people who are developing intimacy with the dirt, for example. Like we don't really know shit about soil, most of us, and our lives absolutely depend on it. And we're losing it at a crazy rate. And we need to learn how to build it. And that sounds small and it doesn't sound very sexy, but I think people who don't have a relationship with soil are dangerous. You know, I'm a dangerous person. Yeah. Speaking of soil, I want to talk about another topic that you've been writing about, human composting. As I've been reading about this, it made me think that many of us are comfortable with kind of living our lives in a way that on some level, which is different for everybody, tries to respect the environment. We compost, we reduce the use of plastics, we reuse, we recycle. But when it comes to composting ourselves, we recoil. Yeah, there's some kind of formative fear about dirt. Yeah, this idea of being buried. I remember that being a real horror story when I was a kid. I mean, my family was on board with cremation. That was sort of, you know, they weren't religious. So the idea of being put in the dirt and being worm fodder was horrifying, which now that I think about it, betrays a belief of like sentience of the corpse or something that you would somehow suffer via your own decomposition. It's an interesting position for atheists to take. But in the city of Seattle, we are the first place in the world, I believe, to legalize. It's an important caveat because I'm sure this has happened sort of off the books in other places, but nevertheless, to legalize and formalize this process of human composting. So essentially, there's a place in, in South Seattle run by a company called Recompose, though competitive companies are now starting up too, but they're, they're the first facility in the world where if you want to be composted, then you have your body taken there and they put you in a vessel with wood chips and alfalfa and seal you in. And over the course of 30 days, they monitor the moisture and the pH in the vessel and they rotate it occasionally. And by the end of it, you are essentially like a garden mulch. There's no way to distinguish it from a soil amendment you would purchase from a garden store. So this company was started by a woman named Katrina Spade, who had studied architecture in graduate school and felt like it was bizarre that there was no real innovation in the field of death in this way. So, you know, your options pretty much commonly, there are some exotic alternatives, but in the States anyway, you can get cremated or you can get buried. You can do green burial. You can get buried in a, in a shroud or, you know, with a simple coffin. 
or you can get embalmed and have all that fancy footwork done and and be put in a heavy casket in a steel lined grave and you know because you need to protect the corpse after death, you know, take up, <laughs> take up a lot of yeah. <laughs> cost your survivors tons of money. But that was it. And I think because there's a taboo around talking and thinking about death and people don't want to innovate in that area because that will require thinking about it. And then it'll require doing something about it. And then you have to communicate your vision to a squeamish population. Anyway, so she was like, this is insane. I'm going to come up with something better. And around the same time, a friend turned her on to something called livestock mortality composting, which is something that farmers in the U.S. have been sort of doing, you know, under the radar. It's not like illegal or anything, but they just, you know, they're not advertising it with their dead livestock for years. And a soil scientist named Lynn Carpenter Boggs had written a couple of studies about this. So what the farmers were doing is when a cow would die or a sheep, they would cover them in manure and alfalfa and, and silage and different things that they had on the farm. And lo and behold, within 90 days, there'd be often nothing in there. So even bones would have been transformed. And it was desirable for a number of reasons. One, it's localized. It's basically free. It's also biosecure because true composting it's not your grandmother's pile of coffee grounds and banana peels. Like in true composting where you're managing carbon and nitrogen levels and, and making sure that the pile has adequate moisture and oxygen, it gets very hot. It gets up to, I don't know what the Celsius conversion is, but it gets up to like 140, 160 degrees. So it neutralizes all the pathogens. And they can do it with almost any animal, not mad cow, because those are malformed proteins that don't die under heat. So those animals have to be incinerated. But she was like, this is it, you know, because you increase your soil fertility, you capture carbon and everything else is polluting, even cremation. Look, everybody I love who's died has been cremated and no knocks on them. But, you know, you're still releasing carbon into the atmosphere through cremation. And, you know, at the end of the day, your bones don't burn anyway. And they put them in a pulverizer and grind them up. And that that they call ash. That's what gets delivered in the urn. So the more I dug into this and the more I felt into the different resistances people had, I, I realized it's because, well, there's no real good solution because it involves dying. Like no matter what, the only option is to die and nobody really wants to. So, you know. And death is confronting and everything around death is is often scary. It's also just so interesting that the, the innovation is wood chips and alfalfa. That's it. They don't put anything else in there. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? It's amazing. It's amazing. I held this recomposed soil in my hands. It's absolutely no different than any of the soil I've worked with in my garden. And you can donate your soil in Seattle to a land restoration site where they're using it to replant trees. And it's just Amazing. a beautiful thing. So what are people's ethical objections then? Like what's coming up for people when they're having a problem with this? She got a fellowship to explore the idea. And that's when the first press started coming in. And I think this was in 2014, maybe. There was a lot of hand wringing about Soylent Green like people are going to use grandma's dirt to grow tomatoes. And in fact, in Colorado, in the states, we have to legalize it state by state. And in the state of Colorado, where they legalized it, they have a provision that says you can't grow food crops with the soil for no scientific reason. It just makes people uneasy because there's nothing communicable in there. It's just it's soil. But if that's not the way they have to do it, then that's OK. But the thing that excited me about it 
obviously it's more environmentally sound and that's great. It's nice to know that your final act on earth is not going to be a polluting one. But what I like about it is this idea of once again, shifting the inherited narrative so that we don't view the dead body as a disease vector that needs to be disposed of because dead bodies generally aren't dangerous. The six foot depth is basically irrelevant. It was just invented during the Black Plague because they thought that it was the bodies, not the rats that were passing it. So if we think of them as potentially beneficial contributors to the earth, then maybe we'll think of our living bodies in the same way, (laughs) you know, because it's really, they're connected this way that we view ourselves as at once superior to all other forms of life on the planet, but also as fallen creatures that are vectors of disease and, and damage. I just want people to know that's a myth that you've inherited, you know? Yeah. It's interesting like to reflect on our discomfort around the topic of death and dying. And I had a conversation with my son who's 11 and a family member died, like the first family death recently. And he was absolutely horrified by the concept of cremation, just horrified by it. And, you know, he talked about being buried and he talked about that he would feel more comfortable with that. And, you know, that leads into these discussions around like, do we have a soul? What happens to your body after you die? All of these kind of big concepts for a little person to grapple with. And as you're talking, I'm just kind of reflecting on that there's already at that age a discomfort with death and a a fear and an unknown. And I wonder if that kind of talking about not being able to grow food in the soil in Colorado, like does that lens come into people's decisions making around death being unknown and perhaps diseased or untouchable and we can't possibly make a jump to eating food that might be grown in the soil even though we're we're eating food that's grown in the soil of other dead creatures that's what soil is yeah (laughs) yeah yeah like it it blows my mind and it just I, I think that these ideas of fear and and distrust or uncertainty around death come at a really early age. Absolutely. I remember that as a kid, just, you know, having my mind bent around the hole. It's like a void in, in understanding. And of course the void is never answered. It's not like now I know. I think we just get better and better at distracting ourselves from it. You know, that's why there are all these different cultural tools in not my culture, but in so many other cultures for remembering death because it's helpful in living your life to remember your death you know it helps you to stay awake to your life I think it's a real gift if you can view it as such as I remember it when I was a kid I would feel some abject terror and then I would kind of forget about it what happened with him he hasn't really talked about it he was out of both of my children he was the most upset by that death and confronted by going to a funeral and knowing that there's a body in a, in a coffin just over there and that this person who was this whole being was now just inside there but they weren't there anymore and, and you know, having these conversations about what happens when you die, what is consciousness, do you have a spirit, do you have a soul, having conversations with an 11-year-old and saying, I don't know, like I, I don't know. That is something I think is also hard for kids because they think their parents know all the things. But, you know, just 
the recognition that we just don't know. And I think that that kind of feeds into the mystery of it all and therefore the fear. And I mean, he hasn't talked about it since I'm sure, I'm sure he's thinking about it, but you know, at the end of the day, you say, well, this is a place you have to land on what you believe because you're your own person. Mm-hmm. Wow. That sounds challenging. Mine's so little, but I can already feel it's much scarier for me to imagine his fear of death than my own, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. So I want to kind of draw the lens back out to you. You talk about heroes in your book. There's a there's a little piece where you're talking about heroes. And so I suspect you'll probably have many thoughts on my next question. Who is or has been your greatest influence in activism or doing good and why? I would say for all its limitations and occasionally corny attributes, that book Ishmael by Daniel Quinn was probably the most formative radicalizing book for me as a kid. You know, I was 15 when I read it, but it was, it was a conversion experience in the sense that I thought one thing before and then my entire way of understanding my life and the world was changed by that book. And then I would say my friend Peter, who's also in the book, is probably the other angel on my shoulder, maybe the angel and devil on my shoulder. He and I dropped out of high school together after reading this book and and ran away to wilderness survival school. And that's one of the threads in the book. And he really stayed with the whole world of rewilding, though it wasn't always called that, you know, at various points, it was like green anarchism and um, people called it primitive skills for a long time. And then that obviously people decided was not not the best way to frame it. So he's just a person who is always living the question and has plenty of flaws, but is always growing and always voraciously learning more and passing on skills to people. I mean, they run free skill shares in Portland where they teach people not only to like make friction fire and shoot bows and arrows, but one of the things they do that I think is really cool and a great example of the possibilities for using our problems to make something beautiful is they have basket weaving classes from invasives. So everybody will go to a public park and yeah, pull English ivy and then use the English ivy to make baskets. Yeah. I mean, it's just great. It's ingenious and it's simple, but it's like, were you to extrapolate that notion that maybe could save the world, that way of thinking? (laughs) Yeah. I love it. I love it. So next is a philosophical question from drawn from the work of a philosopher called Kwame Apaya. And he asks, what do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. Well, I mean, the first thought I have is the predominance of people living their lives in smartphones and on social media. But then the second part of the question that future generations will look back and think, what what were we thinking? I mean, that is my greatest hope is that they look back and think, what were we thinking? And that they're not even more entrenched and sort of machine hybridic or whatever is happening to us. You know, this doesn't make me real popular and I kind of don't care. It always raises people's hackles when you talk shit on social media. And there's so much evidence and there's been so many studies now that show us that this is destroying our ability to think, to be with ourselves, to be with others, to connect. I mean, that it's destroying our ability to speak to each other, that it's, I mean, there's no ambiguity around these things. And yet people, otherwise smart and righteous people will just 
lose it if you push back on it. And again, it just, to me, it feels like talking to addicts. I'm like, all right, yeah. There's, I know all the excuses, man. I used to smoke. I love the so- sociality of smoking a cigarette. I love the ceremony of lighting up. I love, you know, you make all these stories up. It's like, no, you're addicted to nicotine. You're addicted to dopamine. That's it, you know? Yeah, it's a terrifying time to have children. And I, I mean, my kids are on the cusp of wanting social media, already asking. And, you know, I, I have a challenge in myself because I, I use social well, media. Well, so do I. Like they see me use it and here I am on the other side. It's so bad. It's so helpful. I don't want you to use it. It's impossible. Tell me about it. My one-year-old, his favorite thing is to come up and slam the laptop shut. And then what are you supposed to do? Like, no, I'm sorry, sentient being that I made and love. Like I'm, I'm going to keep staring at the screen. I mean, it's horrible. I mean, my son calls me out. It's like, you're just scrolling the ground. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> It's not this situation where I'm like, oh, we're all bad people because we're on this thing. I think some people figured out how to capitalize on this. And there's people who are making tons and tons of money on this problem. And I went to a dumb phone. I got rid of my smartphone. So then you just use it on the laptop. It's not like the addiction goes away. You find another way to get it. Yeah, you'll find another way to get high. You can jump ship, but then everybody you know and love is still on the ship. So what are you going to do? You know, it's it's actually an open question for me. And I really want to hear more people talking about this. It's like, how do we find each other if not on these platforms? You know, because we have to. Especially in COVID. Yeah, especially in COVID. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? Yeah, I mean, controlling for the fact that Maybe not every single person would need to hear this, (laughs) but going back to what you were saying earlier about how rigid personalities push people away from engaging with these forms of activism or this, this way of, you know, like connecting to the land or whatever, I would just tell people that you belong, you belong here. And I guess the other thing I would say is you're going to die soon enough, just like the rest of us. So that doesn't mean you have a blank check to go stomp all over everybody in pursuit of your ideal, but it does mean that however feels right to you to form real relationships with the entities on which your life depends, the waters and the plants and the pollinators and the mammals, et cetera, like that you have every right to connect to those beings and to form your own relationship with them and and you don't need somebody to come give you a stamp of approval to do that. Yeah, definitely. Difficult question in a time of COVID, but where is your favorite place on earth? Hmm. There's a a river near the ocean where I grew up that is a place that sort of saved my life as a kid that I formed a relationship with very early on that is still sort of like a a spiritual home to me. It's like where I go when I'm freaked out, I go there in my mind. So I would say that's it. Amazing. You're reading any books at the moment? I am. What am I reading right now? Oh, I'm reading Sally Rooney's book like everybody else. (laughs) Which one's that? Beautiful World, Where Are You? It's her new novel, but I shouldn't shout it out. It's a number one bestseller. Like she doesn't need any help. (laughs) You know, um, my friend Kate Lebo wrote this great book that's also on FSG in the States. Uh, I don't know if it's in Australia. It might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because she has a British publisher. Anyway, it's called The Book of Difficult Fruit. And it's an abecedarian. So it works like some of those old cookbooks. And each letter is devoted to a different 
quote unquote difficult fruit. So fruits that are, you know, either considered smelly or considered like, you know, trash apples, different things. And then she writes these beautiful essays that are like at once personal and historical and lyric. Yeah, they're amazing. So definitely I would check that out. Awesome. And what about podcasts? Do you listen to them? I just listened to yours because in preparation for this and I, and I really enjoyed it. Actually, I forget the name oh, of the death you. worker. Uh, Zenith Farrago. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. It reminded me of the documentary I had seen on her. That's another thing about, by the way, I think the home funeral thing is great for mitigating fear of death. To just be with a body for a few days is really cool. I'm going to be on the Harper's Magazine podcast soon talking about this recomposition is, is what they call it, the human composting. The technical term is natural organic reduction. Natural organic Although reduction. Although you're not reduced too much because each dead body produces a cubic yard of material, which fills up the back of a pickup truck. I mean, it's a ton. Yeah. Wow. So you're like, like quadrupling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Lisa, thank you so much for... Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I have loved this discussion on so many levels um, and I could talk to you for hours. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And thanks for letting me ramble a little bit into the weeds. (laughs) No worries. Where can people find you? Oh, I have an Instagram. That is the social media I have. And it's Lisa Wells Writer. Just like that. Yeah. Oh, and also I have a website and you can write to me through the website if you don't want to do the nasty... Yep. And uh, where can people find your book? The publisher is Black Ink Books. And I assume most stores in Australia will carry it. Awesome. Well, thank you again. It's been amazing. And yeah, I I hope we get to do this again. Yeah, thank you so much. I might come knock on your door when the death question arises uh, again. (laughs) If you have any advice. Yeah. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. The Good Problem Podcast is a project of Alto. We partner with purpose-driven leaders from the business, non-profit and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical and sustainable impact. Find out more at www.altoglobalconsulting.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Alto.